0: Well, every one of us have felt it before. We've all felt that weight of guilt when it is very heavy. And we've all felt that, that shame that, that presses so hard. We profess Christ, but when we look at our lives, they look nothing like they should. We, we, we keep screwing up, perhaps maybe for the tenth time today those old sin patterns that we thought were, were, were put to death when we trusted in Christ keep coming back. We can't seem to lick that anger that keeps coming out despite our, our best efforts. We want to restore those relationships that are broken, but for whatever reason, we keep bringing up old hurts and old sins, and it, and it just is like a scab opening, and it makes things worse. We know that we shouldn't think or dwell on this or, or, or that or, or that person as much as we do, but we, we can't stop. There are so many ways in which we feel the weight of guilt pressing down on us. And the Apostle Paul felt this too. Our passage this morning is, is set up by Paul at the end of chapter 7. In those verses, he describes the struggle that every Christian has He essentially asks in that chapter, if I have been saved by grace, if my sins have been forgiven, and if I am a new person in Christ, then why do I still struggle? Why is the sin still part of my life? In fact, he he writes this in, in verse 15, 18, and 19. He says, I don't understand my actions, for I do not do what I want. But the very thing I hate, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Have you ever felt that way? You want to please God. You want to live a good life. You, you want to be exemplary, but you find that there is still this, this inner struggle of, of sin That's so hard to fight against. And as hard as you fight, it seems like it is a losing battle. It seems like you're losing more battles than winning. And maybe you have felt like, or, or, uh, you know, maybe you felt like giving up or thinking, man, you know, God is, he's got to be done with me. I have blown it for, for the last time. I mean, if he knows what I've truly done and how many times I keep falling into it again and again and yet have failed, there's no way that I can recover from this. Paul ends this lament with, uh, with this cry in verse 24 of chapter 7. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, he's saying... I, I'm incapable of solving this problem myself, and it's, it's only going to lead me further into the grave. What hope do I have? And now, in the, in, immediately in the next verse, he reminds himself of God's solution to all of this in verse 25 when he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, what Paul here is trying to counter is the argument that would say, When I've received Christ, all my past sins were forgiven. I was given a clean slate, and you know what? I even screwed that up, too. But now in verse 25, it unequivocally says, No, when we were reunited to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, it finally and fully cut off any legal and relational punishment or separation that we would have, have with God. All of our sins, our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins were dealt with fully. This was why he said back in chapter 5, verse 1, when he said that, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justified is in such a form that means it was, it was a past action. Namely, it was Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, and it was applied to Christians through faith, and it has ongoing actions for the rest of eternity that secures our acquittal. And yes, we have that le- those leftover sins and those, those urges that, that keep creeping in, but sin, sin's power to condemn us and control us It's it's done. It's over. Kaput. Say goodbye to it. It's gone. Now in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul lays down perhaps the most important words that you will ever hear in your entire life. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? Let me explain it a little differently. If you are in Christ, if you've been united to him in his death and his resurrection through faith, you are eternally bound to him with no chance of anything in this world of breaking that bond with him. You are forgiven and freed. And the rest of the Christian life then is to work out those kinks that we're going to keep working out to grow and grow more like Jesus every day. In verse 2, Paul describes what the outcome of this justification is. It's what this acquittal means for us now. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So Paul is saying here that there are two operative ways to live. There are two laws that are in effect. The law of the spirit, which is the way of, of the Holy Spirit and God's will and his way, which leads to life. And there's also the way of the law of sin and death, which is the way of the world. It is the way of the natural person, and that leads to nothing but death. Three, uh, These ways of, are, are, of living are antithetical to each other. They cannot coexist in the same space at the same time. And what Paul gets at now in verses 3 through 11 is that in light of the fact that there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, we need to figure out what it means to be on Jesus' team. And he says you're either in team death or you're you're on team life. And Paul is so graciously sympathizing with us to the extent of, of helping us understand when we think that we've sinned one too many times, that we're, that we're too far gone, and that God is done with us. He turns it on his head and says, if you are in Christ Jesus, you can set your affairs in order. You can set your life on the way that it should be. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. In order to do that, there's three things that we need to see. The first is, is that we need to set our life in the direction of love. We need to set our direction in uh, to the uh, our direction in life toward love. In verse three, Paul returns to a a familiar theme that he has been touching on throughout the book of Romans, and, and that is uh, that of the law. And what we mean by the law here is the Mosaic law, the or the uh, the moral law. The uh, you might want to think about it as the Ten Commandments. It, and it's uh, it is the law that helps keep society in, in order, and uh, it also helps people to reflect God's glory. But more importantly, for Paul's purpose here, it, uh, it is the moral code which we need to be able to perfectly do in order to be right with God. It's all those things that we know we, we, we shouldn't do but do anyway, and it's all those things that we uh, know that we uh, should, should do and don't do And who can say they're absolutely perfect in this? If we were to go uh, down the line of the Ten Commandments, none of us would even reach past the first. How many of us would say that we have kept God number one in our lives perfectly from the time that we were born until the time right now? None of us. And we wouldn't even need to go through the rest. I mean, who can say that they've never lied, that have never lusted, never never stolen anything that's even small, or even wanted something that doesn't... Uh, belong to them. And even if we were to get on our high horse and take the position of the rich young ruler and say, well, I've kept all of these until, uh, well, since my youth, James tells us in James chapter 2 verse 10 that whomever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. One little white lie. And we're culpable for all of it. In explaining the gospel, then in verse three, Paul writes, "For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do." So, what was it that the law was supposed to do uh, that it, it, it uh, law could not do? What we expected it to. Well, think about this: Why is it that we have laws in our country that are operative? Well, obviously, it's to, to curb crime and to have peace in an orderly society, but we often believe that the law can uh, order the morals of society, that it's the law that changes the the heart, that the law is what makes people good. And so, we think if we can just pass anti-abortion laws, then people will be better. If we can just set certain speed limits, then maybe people would be safer on the road. If we would have regulations against fraud, then maybe people would be nicer to each other and hence better people. If we have more stringent drug laws, then, then we'd have a, a sober country. Now, are those laws good? Absolutely they are. But do they change the human heart? Absolutely not why because the law can only provide a restraint a warning and a metric when those laws are broken so then what paul's saying here in verse 3 is that the law couldn't do something it could not make us perfect it couldn't make us to be the kind of people that god would would look down and say wow look at them they're fantastic They're absolutely perfect. Rather, the law's power claims was weakened by our sinful nature. It only has the power to set the bar and to provide condemnation. So what is it that that law that couldn't do that God has done? The rest of verse three tells us: by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. And this is one of those great Christmas and Easter passages here. Paul tells us that at Christmas Jesus took, well, God Himself took on flesh, the eternal Son of God. Truly God, from the beginning of eternity, if you can even get your mind around the beginning of an uh, an eternity, took on a human body and a human nature. He was like us almost in all respects, except that he was sinless in his moral qualities and also in his physical uh, body. Our bodies, our minds are affected by sin all the time. And I could give countless examples of, of how sin has affected us. And we've inherited that from our forefather Adam, but not Jesus. His body and his mind was absolutely perfect. It was in the likeness of ours, but it didn't have that sinful DNA that was passed on from Adam that accompanies our hearts, our minds, and and our bodies. And so, it was in his body then, on Good Friday, that he took this condemnation That our lives, our hearts, our minds, our bodies deserved for not living up to these moral laws and commandments. Think about this. The sentence, for everything that you have ever said, thought, and done that goes against God's perfect commands was laid on Christ. Thus, condemning our sin in His flesh. So, why would God do this? Verse 4 tells us, it was in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, you might have already noticed a potential problem here in Paul's logic. How is it that Christ, in his sinless nature, and his sinlessness, took care of the law's um, finger-pointing in his flesh so that we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. I mean, didn't he take care of that? Didn't he say back in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. So how in the world can Paul then say that it's fulfilled in us? And it's here that we have to understand the difference between what theologians call justification And sanctification, I know those are big words, but hear me out here. Justification is that legal declaration that says not guilty. You're acquitted. You can leave the courtroom a free individual. It's what uh, uh, Romans 5.1 says that we've been justified by Faith. And it's that union that we have with Christ that when we have faith that that His work was attributed to us and we are justified. Now contrast that with sanctification, which is the process by which we become more like Jesus. That sanctification, that process of becoming more like Jesus, can only happen after we were justified. We are justified so we can be like Christ. We don't try to be like Christ in order to be justified. Do you see the difference? And this is massively important to understand. Paul is making the case here that Jesus provided our justification, our our righteousness, and our right standing with God in His flesh. Now then, as followers, when we work with the Spirit, we work with the Spirit in order to become more like Jesus. And because our justification is secure, we can live in the way that we are created to. And how were we created to live? Romans 13 in uh, verses 9 through 10 tells us. Romans 13, 9 through 10. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So this is what walking according to the Spirit means. In verse 4, that we have been freed from our sins and freed to love as we were created to love, which we were incapable of doing before we were redeemed. We were free to live outside of ourselves and live for the benefit of others and for the glory of God, thus glorifying the Lord Jesus. So the first thing that Paul tells us here is that we are to walk according to love. And the second thing that we ought to be mindful of here is that we should set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. So, in verses 5 through 8, Paul provides this, again, this contrasting ways of living. Uh, on, On the one hand, we can live according to the flesh, uh, to live according to the flesh, again, is to live according to the patterns of the world. It's, it's to live for that which is most pleasurable. It's to live according to the passions and the desires of, of the culture, and the chief end of living in the flesh is personal satisfaction. It's, 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 it's gimme, gimme, gimme. I am the God of my universe, and everything else needs to bow down to me. And many of us fall into that, whether, uh, whether we recognize it or not. And Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There's that word again. Carrying out what? The desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. That's God's wrath on us like the rest of, the ma- of mankind. And so now he contrasts that back in Romans 8 with living in the Spirit. And to live in the Spirit is to live for the things of God. It is to strive to live for holiness. It is the strive to strive to be more righteous in our lives. It is to die for ourselves and to live for the good of others and for the glory of God. And through these ways, uh, though these ways of living are binary, they cannot coexist. You're either living according to the flesh or you're living according to the Spirit. Now in verse 5, Paul tells us where that battlefield takes place. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So where does this battle take place? It takes place in the life of the mind. Our thought life is uh, not recognized enough in our churches. Paul Tripp is, is famous for saying, no one is more influential in your life than you because no one talks to you more than you do. The thought life is incredibly important. There's always a conversation going on. There's always something happening, a battle. And the question is, are you going to feed the desires of the flesh, or are you going to walk according to the Spirit by letting your mind be saturated by the things of God? It's a very serious question. Because verse 6 tells us that to set the mind on the flesh is death. Friends, recognize the seriousness of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin, the things that we are owed for sin is death. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, the soul that sins shall die. This isn't some theoretical thing we're coming up with, this is deadly. It's not only physical death, which is the result of sin, which we'll all experience, but it's also eternal death which is a separation from God. It is, it is hell, in other words. It is a soul that cannot do anything of value. And there's already a, 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 a bunch of evidence that soul sickness is happening right now in the vast majority of the people in the world. Look at verse 7. For the mind that is set on, on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law and here's the rub indeed it cannot those who are in the flesh can not please god there's language of impossibility here those who are in the flesh don't have the ability to submit to god it isn't in their dna No one can say yes to God without the Spirit of God first working in them. And Paul is saying here something so radical that I'm willing to bet that it's hard for some of us to accept. Think about your average Joe. Apart from the grace of God, he can do nothing that pleases the Lord. He can even do things such as stop a robbery, save a choking victim with the Heimlich maneuver, or find the cure for cancer. Are those good things, worldly speaking? Absolutely. But unless he is living in the Spirit, he cannot please God. This is so clear through Scripture. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. Well, I marked both of those there. It should be James chapter, uh, James chapter 4, verse 4, which says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James chapter 4, verse 4. But, Paul says in verse 6, To set the mind on the the Spirit is life and peace. So whereas setting your mind on the flesh is death— the, life of the, uh, the mind on the Spirit is life. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 put it this way. It says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. That's not to say that we have our head in the clouds and we don't recognize the things that are going here, but rather it is to view all of life through a Christian worldview. How are you interpreting the news that you see on television? How are you interpreting the shows that your children are watching? Is it through a a, a a mind that is on the flesh, or is it a mind that's on the spirit and sees through some of what the world is saying? This is to refrain from a nihilistic view of life to one that Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, when he says that we are to put our minds on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about such things. Where's your default mind going? To the things of the flesh or to the things of the Spirit? Your life, your body, your eyes, your members will follow the direction of your mind. And what you dwell on and what you cherish defines you. And your behavior will manifest where your heart and mind is. So I ask you, where is your mind today? Is it on the things of this world? Then you will live for the things of this world. Is it on the Spirit? Then you will have life and live according to the Spirit. So set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And finally, we should set our hope on future glory, set your hope in future glory. Verses nine through eleven are some of the most glorious words you will ever read. After giving this lengthy description of the plight of those who live in according to the flesh, he returns back now to the life of believers when he writes. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. When you became a Christian, when you said yes to God, the Holy Spirit took your, uh, he gave life to your dead heart, allowing you to say yes And you ceased to have union with your old self. That old self is gone. It's dead. It is no longer active. It is no longer living. Yes, it still has some leftover junk, but its effect and its controls are gone. When you received Christ, you received a totally new identity. You are now united to Christ. His Spirit lives within you. His Spirit is in you, and now you live in the Spirit. Paul is realistic, though. He recognizes that not everyone who goes to church on a Sunday morning is a Christian. He knows that there are probably some posers out there who have deceived themselves and others, and so he puts a qualifier here. Look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells on you. Did you catch that? If you are, in fact, in the Spirit, if, in fact, you have died to yourself, if, in fact, you have received Christ and you have been given new life, then you are no longer in the flesh. But let's not be delusional. There are some who are not there yet, And Paul wants to make sure that there aren't any misunderstandings here. Look at at the last part of verse 9. It says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So don't go thinking that if you just put in your time at church, or if you're just a good person, or if you're just having a pleasant life, that you have Christ. Those don't get you Jesus. It's way more personal than that. It is recognizing your sin, and it's turning from that sin that he alone is sufficient to take care of those sins, and that his resurrection proved his power, and his power is now in you as you work to love him and for his glory. That digression now aside, uh, verse 10 provides us with some amazingly good news for us who are in Christ. He says again, but if Christ is in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So, have you ever wondered why, if if Christ defeated sin in his death and his resurrection, if, if an empty cross and an empty tomb provided our justification, why do we still experience sickness and death? Why do we still hurt each other? Why are we hurt by others? The answer is right here in verse 10. uh, 10. Sin no longer has dominion over our nature, but we still experience the results of sin. The fact that there's influenza and tuberculosis and cancer and COVID and many diseases that can cripple us is because we live in a fallen world. They're all results of the fall. And the sobering reality is that even if we are in Christ Jesus, because of sin, there's coming a day when every one of us will end up in a box or in an urn. It's the reality that we have to face. But, Paul tells us, if Christ is in you, though you will die, you will live. If Christ is in you, then at the moment of your last breath, you will experience life like you have never experienced life before. You'll be fitter. You'll be stronger. You'll be happier. You are not subject to colds or, or, or back pain that's been bothering you for 50 years. Or conflict? Isn't it great news that there aren't any wheelchairs in heaven? Isn't it great news that there are no hospital beds in heaven? It'll all be gone. And he sweetens the language here even more in verse 11. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and stop there for just a second, what kind of power would it take to bring someone physically from death to life? My goodness, the only power that can create life itself is the power that can resurrect dead flesh into live human tissue again. And it's Paul is saying that the one who had the power to do that in Jesus is in you. He goes on here. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So what does that mean? This life that we experience where we have conflict and mental anguish and broken bones and, and, and illnesses and all sorts of violence and, and these, this brokenness in our, in our world, that this is not all there is. There's countless chapters waiting to be written. Your body may go into the ground, much sooner than you would like it to, but your spirit will soar into heaven and be with Christ, and even that is an interim. There's coming a day in which God will raise us up from the ground like a phoenix coming out of the ashes, and our souls and our bodies will be reunited together once again in glory just as we were created to be. We will be body and soul united without the constraints of decay and sin. We will spend eternity never experiencing loss. Never having a reason ever again to shed a tear. Never having to put a Band-Aid on again. Never having to buy another casket or go into one ourselves. And what is the agent of this future resurrection hope? The one who raised Jesus from the dead says, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh because it is this same spirit that will give life to our mortal bodies bodies. Friends, I don't know where you're placing your hope, but I do know that if you place it in anything or anyone besides the resurrected Jesus, then you have no ultimate hope. You have a band-aid for a few years, if that. In Jesus, there is eternal hope hope. Hope is found only in Him. Only in Him can we expect that there is more to come. Only in Him can we find purpose for our pain. And only in Him can we find the joy of immortality then. Friends, set your hope in this future glory. Set your hope in Christ and the work of His Spirit now and for billions of years to come. It's guaranteed for those who, are, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Today, friends, you are presented with two ways of living. We can live according to the flesh. We can live according to the Spirit of the age, gratifying those desires and, and living for those pleasures of life as much as we can. And that might be fun for a few years. But Paul is clear that that way of living is a one-way ticket to death. We are born that way, and sadly, most people in the world continue in that way and don't care. But Jesus is calling you to something better. He is calling you to live in the Spirit. He is calling you to find life and joy and peace and future glory. And the only way to do that is to trust in Jesus and have his Spirit, even if he needs to pick up one foot in front of the other to walk in light of the Spirit, he will do that. It is to turn from your sin and turn your life over to Christ. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But he is offering you faith and life in Christ through his Spirit. And the question is, are you going to take him up on that offer? Christ is calling you today. Will you choose the flesh or the Spirit? Friends, heed the call of Christ Jesus. Let's pray.